if you have your Bible, join with me in the book of Matthew, chapter 6, as we continue on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and as you're turning to Matthew, chapter 6, there's a story that I heard from a uh, commentator, Bible scholar. You may know him. His name is Martin Lloyd-Jones. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's kind of a kind of his focus is really on the Psalms, but he shared a story at one point. Some of you maybe even heard this story, but he shares a story of a farmer who had come in after doing his early morning chores, even before breakfast. He comes in, his wife is making breakfast, and he comes in, he's so excited, he's, he's, he's beaming with joy because he tells his wife, he said, you won't believe what happened last night. Uh, our best cow gave birth to two twin calves. They're just beautiful. They're just wonderful. Like we just... They're going, to be, they're going to be amazing. I was so moved by just this wondrous gift and how healthy they are that I think we need to dedicate one of these two to the Lord. And so as they're having this discussion, the wife asks him, well, which one are we going to dedicate to the Lord? And his response to, to her was just simply, well, we'll see. When the time comes, I think we'll know exactly which one we're going to dedicate to the Lord. Well, not, not many months later, uh, the husband comes in from his early morning chores, and this time, instead of being excited and beaming with joy, he's pretty down. Uh, he's, he's just really quiet, really somber, and the wife, she's kind of getting the breakfast ready, getting the coffee ready, and she turns and says, well, what's wrong, honey? What's, what's going on? He said, hate to tell you, but the Lord's calf died today. <laughs> Why is it always that the Lord's calf is the one that dies? I think oftentimes it's because of how we set our affection of where we set our values, our priorities, of what we treasure. And often we kind of get askew or we get a little bit off because of a misplaced heart. And for me, throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 and chapter 6, though there's some nuances and some differences between this kind of the, the transition of Jesus preaching on this mountainside, we, we see in this moment that whether it's what we saw in chapter 5 or whether we saw it in chapter 6 with these spiritual disciplines, it has so much to do with our heart and our heart's intention. And so um, my question is, as we kind of go into our time this morning is, where is your heart placed? Like, what are, what are you setting your vision on, your affection upon? What sits on the throne of your heart? And we know the right answer in this setting especially was Jesus. But I want us to kind of peel back the church language for a moment and just kind of really evaluate ourselves today and try to recognize, what do I truly treasure? What's most valuable and precious to me? And there's some things that this world offers that they're wonderful, and I think it's great to be wise and invest and, and do important things with. But when we strip it all back in a way, especially, especially as we maybe even come towards the end of our life and we begin to evaluate, what did I give myself to? I want us to really evaluate that today. And so look with me in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 19. We're going to look at a decent chunk of Scripture today, so hang on tight. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Jesus continues from the three spiritual disciplines of giving, prayer, and fasting. And now he says, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but rather store up for yourselves treasure, treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." 
If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. For this reason, I say to you, do not be worried. You're going to hear that three more t- or two more times. Do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you, <clears throat> are you not worth much more than they? And who of you being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself, uh, uh, in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry. Then saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles, or the pagans, eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows what you need, all, knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself, and each day has enough trouble of its own." If you're taking notes, the first thing I want you to see is in those first couple of verses back in 19 and, and 20 and 21, it's, it's this idea of, of real treasure. What is real treasure? <clears throat> what we must do is we must choose where our treasure will be. He specifically identifies in verse 19 and 20, either we're storing up for ourselves treasures on this earth or treasures in in heaven. And obviously, he's trying to make the point that one is greater uh, than the other. And so where are we focusing our investments, our, our, our priorities of when it comes to things on earth or things in heaven? Specifically, there's a parable that Jesus shares in the book of Luke chapter 12. We're not going to turn there, but you may be familiar with this story of where a man actually comes to Jesus in, in, in a real-life situation, and he says, basically, I have this inheritance. Uh, I'm not getting this from, from family members. What should I do? And he's just like, uh, let me tell you a story. <laughs> let me tell you a parable. And, and, and he shares that there was this man who had a lot of wealth, and he had built up so much wealth that he looked at himself and saw that his barns were getting full, his silos were getting full, and he said, I have so much more. I need to tear those down and fill them up so that now I can just eat, drink, and be merry. That's just what I'm going to do with my life. And, and so in the parable, God looks upon this man who says, I'm going to store it for myself. There's a lot of me and myself and I in this parable. And God looks upon him and says, you fool, tonight your soul is required of you. Who then is going to have all your stuff? Like, how are you going to enjoy all of that stuff? And as we journey into this, we could look at verses 19 through 24 and beyond and we could think, well, this is another message on, on wealth or money. And I guess you could say it's true because it's interesting how often Jesus actually spoke about money and wealth. He wasn't shy about it because he knew, just as it was for them in their day and time with what they considered to be wealth, wealth or value, it was just as much can be a struggle and an idol for us today. And 
what we have to understand is before we go any further is a few disclaimers. There's nothing wrong with, with wealth or with money. We know from the book of 1 Timothy that it's the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money that is the root of all evil. In fact, in that same passage of Scripture, we actually find where, uh, where the Apostle Paul tells Timothy that you need to enjoy what has been given to you. The, the possessions that you have, the, the wealth that God has allowed you to have, there's nothing wrong with enjoying what it is that you've actually received. What we find is in this passage, God is not anti-wealth in, in any way, shape, or form. There's enough Scripture. He's also not anti-savings. You can read in the Proverbs of how the ant would prepare in the summer for the winter. Like, there's an importance of understanding of how to, to proportionally deal with what it is that God has given you to be a good steward of it. But what God is anti is anti-hoarding. He's anti-hoarding. You ever seen that show, Hoarders? It's terrifying. You walk into a place, and there's just like TV guys or National Geographic just stacked everywhere. It's like, Why? Why, why, why this? Why is this what you're choosing? Like, you've given yourself to that. And, and we have these things that we just store up. And can I tell you, one of the, one of the greatest things that I, I feel that my parents had kind of offered to me was an opportunity of where, uh, you, you know how when, for, for those of you who have experienced this, your kids are grown and they leave the house, and yet they didn't really leave the house because all of their stuff is in the attic? And you as parents are like, get your stuff out of my attic. <laughs> and so I can, I can remember uh, this was well after I, Tiffany and I are married at this point. I still got some childhood stuff up in the attic. And, and my mom, because she had just experienced some loss and grief of her parents, she was wanting to be very intentional about when I'm gone, I would much rather go through this stuff with you and us determine, is this something that you're going to take home with you as your keepsake? Because it's not going back up in my attic. <laughs> or is this something that we can cherish for a moment, have some sweet memories, and I get to be a part of it because the Lord hasn't taken me home yet. And we can enjoy this conversation and, and have some laughs or even some tears of, of, you know, that cute little stuffed animal or that cute little paper that you wrote. I mean, I had papers from like fifth grade and it's like, why, why do I have this here? Yes, uh, you know, I, I made an 85. Congratulations. Why am I keeping this? And, and what it is, is I've, I've unfortunately, uh, but also in a privileged kind of way, uh, I've conducted far more funerals than I would ever have cared to conduct. It reminds me of, of, of the reality of sin and death. I mean, it, it, it's hard. But I, I, I have seen countless times and walked through countless families of going through that process. And one of the hardest things is, is when a loved one, especially a, a parent, passes away for those kids of, what do we do with this stuff? Because if I don't do something with it appropriately, they're going to be mad at me. But this, was this, how important was this to them? I don't know. And so we hang on to stuff. And if we're not careful, we're hanging on to stuff, or we're not hanging on to these people and, and the memories that we have. And can I just share just, just a practical bit of advice? You don't have to do this. There's nothing biblical about this. But I'm so grateful for what my mom provided for me and my brothers because we got to experience those sweet memories together. But when the Lord does take her home, we don't have to go through a mountain of stuff. We can just focus on saying, Mom, I'll see you soon. I feel like she did us a huge favor. I feel like it was incredibly kind of her to be willing to part with some of this stuff in order to help us walk through the process of one day when she's not on this earth anymore. 
And I know we don't like to talk about death or the reality of death or what to do with death or how to respond to death or what to do after death, but death is a reality. And to me, it was just a practical thing of where, I don't know if she read this scripture, but when I read this scripture this past week as I studied it, the first thing I thought of when I thought of anti-hoarding was, I'm grateful that my mom, she hoarded some of our stuff because we kind of made her. But, but she, she wanted to, to value what was more valuable, the people, her sons that were involved in that stuff. Again, it's not that we can't have things. It's not that you can't collect things. But I think if we really would stop and evaluate, am I collecting, am I enjoying, or am I hoarding? And I think we know the difference. We just might not want to identify ourselves as that individual or for this specific thing. I've hoarded so many pieces of clothing that Tiffany's had to throw them away because she said, they're inappropriate to wear. There's holes. You just can't wear this anymore. And I'm like, but they're comfortable. I want to wear them. And I hold on to them because they're my shorts. They're mine. And that's, I think, the crux of it. It's mine. These are my things. No one will take them because they're mine. And with anything I think we have in this world, we, we, we hold on to them, yes, but we hold on to them kind of with these open hands. I imagine you as, who, are, who are parents and grandparents, you you've maybe have experienced in a negative way, in a positive way, when you held on too tight or maybe when you let go too much. But it's this idea of, I don't want anything on this earth, as great as it may be, to take the place of God and the treasure that I find in Him. And, and he goes through in verse 19, he talks about things that are going to where moth and rust, rust destroy moth, would be thinking of clothing. R- really, there were three main valuable possessions that people would have in this day and time. Uh, they didn't have cash. Uh, they, they would have clothing. That was very much a, a wealth status. You didn't have a lot of clothes in that day and time. So clothing was a big deal to demonstrate your wealth. The other was um, when it says rust destroys. Literally, the, the Greek word there is not rust. It's actually eat. So there's a lot of scholars that think that one of the other main kind of uh, commodities that you would have other than clothing was food, grain. Like if you had a lot of grain stored up, but if you have so much stored up that it goes bad because the, it's eaten away, yeah, the, the mice are going after it, what good is it doing you if it's just being eaten away? You got this stockpile, but now it's actually being spoiled and ruined. And then he goes on and he talks about where thieves break in. Oftentimes your most valuable things, for example, precious metals or stones, that's where they would keep their stuff was in their home closest to them. And it's saying people were coming in and, and all these things, they could either wither away, rust away, eat away, be taken from you. But there's going to be some things that you can invest in that you're, you're never going to lose it. So do you know what those are? And oftentimes we can get kind of grandiose with this idea of invest in things that are in heaven. And, and you're like, yeah, what does that mean? <laughs> What can I invest in that is eternal? And what we find throughout Scripture is that the real treasure that perseveres is eternal. So if we want to invest in things that are going to be stored up for us in heaven, treasure in heaven, then it must be eternal. So the question should then fall back, well, what is eternal? What can I eternally invest in? What could I store up? And a a real investment isn't land or cattle or some kind of inheritance. It's actually three specific things that I found throughout Scripture is God is eternal, His Word is eternal, and the souls of men and women are eternal. These are what we invest in. God, the Word, and people. 
These are the things that should be most valuable to us because these are what are most valuable to God. God values his name. He values his glory getting out. And he does so through, uh, ultimately, through the revelation of himself through his word, that people would hear this word, study this word, and this is how you're going to know who God is, how you're going to know who you are in relationship to him. If it wasn't for God and his word revealing himself to us, it's not enough for creation to reveal it to us although it's very helpful, it's when we receive the law of God, that the law of God became a tutor to us, it says in the book of Romans, that we come to understand there is a standard set by a holy being that is God. And if I break that standard, I'm separated from that holy God. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, what must I do to be saved? And God comes along and he says, here's the good news. And it's from my words, my revelation to you. Sometimes we read the Bible and we go, man, I want to study it. I want to know it. But what, is it, what does it say about this specific subject? I wish it said it more about angels. I really want to know more about angels. This isn't a book about angels. Angels come up, but this is a book about God. God saying, this is how you can come to know me and be in relationship with me. That's the beauty of the revelation of the word of God. God would be willing and, and kind enough to say, Here's your, here's your bad news. You're a sinner in need of a Savior, but here's your good news. I can be your Savior. I will come after you. I will pursue you. I will initiate a relationship with you. My son is going to live and die for you and then come back to life that you have the power to overcome your sin, have forgiveness and atonement. And so we want to invest in those things. Those are the eternal things that we want to give ourselves to. God, his word, and the souls of, of men and women. I heard one pastor put it this way, and, and don't get me wrong, I get concerned about finances. I, I'm, I'm just as human as you. I get concerned about possessions and, and, and issues of life. But one pastor put it this way. He said, in all my years of pastoring and counseling, I've had different men specifically pull up into my house. And he said, what I've never had is a man pull up into my house with an old beat-up Ford pickup truck about you know, 15, 20 years old and come in and go, Pastor, I just, I really need a Tesla. I'm really worried that I'm never going to get a Tesla. And he's just weeping and crying that he can't get the Tesla. It's like, I've never had that. But I have had people come up into my home, pull into my driveway with some of the nicest automobiles you've ever seen, and they're weeping on my couch because their marriage is in shams. Their kids are just so wayward. And they're saying, Pastor, how do I get out of this? It's not our possessions. Possessions are great. I love a lot of the stuff that I have. It's fantastic. Hopefully you enjoy your things that God has blessed you with. But no thing is going to to help us in those things that are most valuable to us when we break it down. God, his word, and man, the people that are around us, your spouse, your children, your brothers and sisters in Christ, this community that we begin to pray for them, develop a heart for them. We see them as people with souls because they have souls and we ache for them because they're in the kingdom of darkness. And if they remain trapped in that kingdom of darkness and their eyes never come alive in a light through the, proclaim of the uh, proclamation of the gospel, then they will spend eternity in hell, separated from God. What do we treasure? What do we value? And oftentimes it's when we get our hearts misplaced that we kind of miss it. 
And so what Jesus does is he goes into verses 22 and 23. He talked about real treasure. Now he's talking about real vision. And when he talks in verses 22 and 23 about real vision, really this is kind of Jesus illustrating his point from verses 19, 20, and 21. This is him trying to kind of help make sense of what it is he's trying to, to say. And so when he's talking about real vision, he's saying not only must we choose where our treasure will be, but we must choose what our vision will be. Vision or perception. For, for, the, for the eyes, think physically, for our eyes, that's how we see things. That's how we perceive things in the physical realm. But when it comes to the heart, when it comes to the heart, that, that's kind of our spiritual eyes that we're able to see. What are we giving attention to with our eyes? And what we give attention to with our eyes is going to be what we give attention to with our hearts. Our, our eyes are like that window to our, to our soul, to our, to our heart. And sometimes if we're not careful, the things of this world can cloud the, our, our vision to where it's no longer healthy. We're not really seeing from an eternal perspective because we're so focused on the temporal. It's like taking black shoe polish and, and putting it over the, the windows of your, of your car, and you're like, I don't know why I'm having such a hard time driving. This has never been so difficult before. It's because your vision is blocked. You're, you're not having your vision on what, what is right. I heard one pastor put it this way. He says, what you fix your attention to your gaze, your eyes, that you will desire. But it's almost like a sick cycle, like a vicious cycle. What you desire is what you will fix your attention to. Do you get that? What you fix your attention to, you desire. What you desire, you fix your attention to. So on both ends of that spectrum, what are you setting your affection upon, your attention toward, and, and what are you actually looking at? What, what, are, you, what are you gazing upon? literally and figuratively. Like, what, what is it that has the attention of your heart? And you've heard this before, and I've shared it before, and you've probably heard it many times. If I want to have a real idea of what it is that you value and what you invest in and what you give most, most value to, is if I take a look at your bank statement and your calendar, I will know your values. It's really your personal doctrinal statement. If I can look at your bank statement and if I can look at your calendar. Because for us, time and where we spin and what we invest in are telltale signs of what is it that we value the most. And again, this isn't, again, to, to, to beat up or say, oh, well, does that mean I can't go get gas to be able to go to work? No, 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 no. It's not what it's saying. Yeah, I'll, you'll see that on my bank statement too. <laughs> it's a matter of just coming back and going, if I do look at my calendar and the time that I spend from day in to day out, is any of it in those three God, his word, and investing in the souls of men and women, investing in my children, investing in my spouse, investing in people. So that's real treasure, real vision. Look at real devotion. Verse 24. Verse 24. It's a passage that you've probably heard before. No one can serve two masters. He either hate the one, love the other, devoted to one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. We must choose who our master will be. We must choose who our master will be. Where does your allegiance lie? Who are you devoted to? In every career that is out there that we have, if we're not careful, no matter what walk of life, it, it might be in construction, you might be a lawyer, you might be a businessman, you might be a teacher, you might be in ministry. If we're not careful, what can happen is those, those occupations can become what occupies us the most. And I get it. We're giving 40 hours or more to that, 50 hours or more to that, 60 hours or more to that. But at what point does it become that, 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 that limit? Because if, if we're not careful, treasure or wealth or money 
begins to become the ambition of life. And we use all kinds of reasons and rationale of why we're, we're doing what we're doing. But, but as we look back, it's like that's all that we have. And according to what Jesus has previously said, man, if, if the ambition of your life is what's here on this earth, the temporary, not the souls of men and women, the Word of God, God Himself, then that is going to be what clouds your vision. And that will be what you ultimately serve. Now, again, as I, as I made the disclaimer earlier, you, you could hear this and go, man, then I don't want anything to do with money. I'm just going to give it all away. That's, that's not good stewardship of what God has given you. Again, as we see in 1 Timothy, we're to enjoy what God has given us. We see throughout Scripture, church history, many who had plenty of money, but they leveraged it for God and for His kingdom. Money is, is not bad, but money can own us. It's interesting how our possessions can almost own us if we're not careful. Money is a good tool, but money is always a bad God. Money is a great tool, but it's a horrible and deceitful idol if we allow it to sit on the throne. Not to continue with the death and funeral motif, but it's kind of what came to me this week. What is that legacy that you're going to have when it's your funeral? What are people going to say about you? Again, I've conducted so many funerals of where I've heard some of the most incredible things said about these men and women, and then I've had some that I sit down and I visit with, and I'm like, tell me about your brother. Tell me about your sister. Tell me about your mom or your dad. And as I visit with them, the first thing that can come to mind, and I'll visit with them multiple times, especially when I was in Oklahoma, was he's a big OU fan. And I'm like, that's great. I'll say that about my dad. He's a huge OU fan, fanatical about the Sooners. But I know in conversations with my dad that if I were to ask him right now, what would you want people to say about you? Not just the day of your funeral, but beyond. Being a Sooner fan is not the highest on the list. It's I want to be known that I was a man of God who loved my wife, loved my sons, poured into my grandkids, impacted the community. What's that legacy? I don't know about you, but I don't want anybody to come to my funeral and go, man, that Stephen, he was all about the cash. He was cold-hearted. Man, he, 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 would, he would throw anybody under the bus, step all over him, just get that cash because he wanted that money. He was all about the money. I, I don't want that to be about me. I don't think you want that to be about you. And that's an extreme measure. But what is it? Have you thought about what, what would people, when they look at the, uh, the, the survey of your life, what would they say? One of my professors in seminary it's a really powerful thing that as parents and grandparents that I would encourage you to do with your children a bit. Uh, this man by the name of Dr. Ross, he, uh, some of you may remember from like back in the 90s, there was this ministry called True Love Waits. Uh, Dr. Ross is actually the one who started that, that ministry. And uh, he continued on to do so many other things that were incredible that helped the kingdom. But one of the things that he did is when he was going through his doctoral thesis, he was doing all of his work there to get his doctorate. His son was probably about nine or 10 years old. And he began to talk to his son. And they had that, that relationship that those of you uh, who have children and those of you who specifically have a son of that nine to 10-year-old range for dad to son is where dad is very much Superman. Like, I love my dad. I want to be around my dad. My dad is awesome. He can do anything. Nothing's ever going to hurt him. And they had this wonderful relationship. And he was talking to his son and he said, everything I'm studying 
is, flies into the face of what the world says. The world says, as you become a teenager, we're supposed to pull apart. We're supposed to actually hate each other. We're supposed to not get along with one another. That's what the world is telling us, that that should be the norm of going into your teenage years, that we're just going to be contentious. Now, there's a reality. You're growing up, and I'm trying to figure out how you're growing up, and you're becoming a man, and how I'm allowing you to become that man. I got to deal with that. You got to deal with that. But he said, I don't know about you, but he said, son, I love you. Can we continue this relationship? And the son, especially at that age, is like, yeah, let's continue that relationship. Your dad, you're Superman. And so they continue that relationship. And he began to go through some of his study, and he, 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 he produced this thing just called 30 Days. And it was 30 days of just an intentional relationship of where he and his son were just doing all these different activities together because he wanted to choose to be intentional informally, informally, and formally in his relationship with his son. And one of the things that they had was an activity of where he said, all right, son, I want you to set up the room as if it's my funeral and your funeral. And he said, I'm going to lay on this couch And he said, you set up the room, and then I'm going to have you go first. And he said, I'm going to read over you what I want you to know, what I want to leave you with. I want you to know these are the most essential and important things. And he said, and then we're going to flip it, and you're going to do that to me as well. At this point, he's probably about 12. And so as they're going through this, he allowed his son to set the room. And you know what his son did? He turned it into basically Catholic mass on fire. He lit all the candles they had in the house. Just so many candles just lit up of like, we're going to set the mood, set the scene. And so his, his son lays down first on that couch and he begins to talk over his son. He says, son, I'm so proud of you. I'm so grateful that you came to know the word of God. He just begins to just, just breathe life into his son. But it's words that his son got to hear because you never know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. We haven't even got to that yet. I don't know if we're going to have time to get to that, but we don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know what today holds right now to where I can't tell you again how many funerals I've done. I wish I would have said. What you're really saying is I wish I would have invested in eternal things, the soul of my children, my spouse. And so he's speaking over his son, and his son is just like, this is great. I love all of this affirmation. It feels good. Thank you, Dad. And then it was Dr. Ross's turn to lay on that couch, close his eyes, and his son had prepared things as a 12-year-old would prepare and began to speak over him. And Dr. Ross, as he shared the story in that class at about 8 o'clock in the morning, tears were just streaming down his face of hearing what his son had to say about him because he knows we may not have a setting like this where I get to hear this in this kind of way. And when I heard that, I was just like, so many, yes, parents, but, but, but dads leading their homes, man, do it. Don't be shy about it. He, and, and he, as he's passed this on to other men at churches and ministries that he's been able to speak to, He's like, I know a lot of you guys are going to be incredibly awkward and uncomfortable in this, but your son needs to hear it. Your daughter needs to hear it because you don't know what tomorrow holds and you want them to know what is most precious to me is God, his word, and the souls of men and women, and that includes yours. Everyone in the class was just weeping as he shared this story. And we might go, man, but that's something that a Dr. Ross did, the guy who started True Love Waits and all these other incredible ministries that have impacted not just America, but the globe. Like, it's incredible. And it's like, huh. 
we're able to do that if we have that intentionality. And so I urge you to even think about today, what, what is it that you would want to be said about you? And then set your gaze upon that. And if for those of you, it's like money, set your gaze on that. That's what they'll say. If it's the souls of men and, men and women, your children, your community, your church, I mean, if that's what you're passionate about, that's what you're dedicated to, don't be surprised if that's what people bring up. Even just this past fall, I was at a, or uh, uh, past summer, I was at a service and just to hear the devotion of this man to his family and to missions. I didn't even know him very well. And I was just moved by it. Man. So as he goes into this next section, oftentimes we focus primarily on verses 25 through 34 when someone preaches this. And I'm not doing this because we don't want to focus on it, but because of time, we aren't going to be able to dive in as much. But a lot of preachers have preached just those verses and even neglected the ones preceding it. But really, verses 25 through 34, 25 starts in a lot of translations with therefore. My translation says in verse 25, for this reason. Basically, verses 25 through 34 are in light of you getting your perspective right, getting your vision right, getting your heart right, setting on things that are eternal, things that are above then you don't need to worry. This, this is him saying this is the outcome of having an eternal perspective. It's don't worry. Don't have anxiety. I know we're all concerned. We, we want to have clothes to wear. We want to have food to eat. The basic needs of life we definitely want. Obviously, <laughs> we need clothes. We need food. But he's saying, I'm going to take care of you because I'm devoted to you. I'm not doing this out of obligation because I'm God, so I got to feed you and I got to clothe you. It's I'm God, I love you. And I'm not just going to feed you and clothe you. I'm going to send you my son that your sins could be forgiven. Like I am, I am passionate of you because I value you. You're created in my image. You are a valuable individual. He pursues us. But man, with that worry thought about this today. Easy thing you could do today is you could leave today and go, not supposed to worry, not supposed to worry. And then you begin to worry about not worrying. You ever been there? It's absolutely obnoxious and annoying when that happens to me. I'm like, stop worrying, Stephen. Okay, stop worrying. So now I'm worrying about... And it's just this vicious cycle that we experience. So yeah, I'm going to give you the command that he says, do not be worried. We are not to worry. And don't use your semantics or your vernacular to go, well, I'm not really worried. I'm just concerned. It's like, you're splitting hairs. You're worried. You're anxious. I was probably anxious just last week about things. Like, we're we're anxious. We get anxious very easy. We become fearful. We begin to ask that question, what if? I heard one Bible commentator say, when we ask what if, it's what I fear is really what you're saying. (laughs) What I fear. And what we fear at times is that we're going to be neglected. And it's something that I've, I've preached on before. I don't know if I have here, but the lie that launched a million sins out of Genesis chapter 3 is that the serpent comes to Eve and he says, did God really say you couldn't eat of that fruit? Did God really say that, that you would die? Satan's great deception isn't that God is this horrible being that doesn't care for you is that God is neglecting you, that he doesn't have your best for your intention. Whereas we know that he is a giver of good gifts. Every gift that is given to us is from above, that he loves us. He's not holding out on us. 
He cares for us so much that if you ever wonder or doubt or fear, God, do you love me? God, do you care for me? Look upon the cross, especially when tears are streaming down your face and you're going through loss or heartache or just overwhelming anxiety. And you're like, God, where are you? Do you love me? Look to the cross. When we doubt his love, we look to the cross and we see <laughs> what a great love he has for us, that he would lay down the life of his son for us we might have salvation. Now, when we talk about worry, here's a few things about worry. This is true in my life. Worry is a telltale sign that your priorities, my priorities are a little bit out of whack because oftentimes worry boils down to a lack of faith because you fear something. Worry is the sin of distrusting the promise and providence of God. Worry actually comes from an old German word that means to strangle or to choke. And isn't that what worry does? It strangles us. It chokes us. It's put us in that, that headlock. It's like a mental and emotional strangulation. And then it begins to affect us not only mentally, but even physically. We know anxiety, medically speaking, the more anxious we are, the more it affects us even physically. It, it's honestly, it's kind of that idea of if you've ever been driving, even yesterday morning, we had an incredible amount of fog. I, I can remember driving in high school in Jinx America, and I had just turned 16, and I'm driving late at night, and I don't really, I haven't driven in fog yet, and I mean, it is just a thick soup of fog as I'm trying to get home, and I, I'm just wondering what's going on, so I do what a 16-year-old does because I don't know a lot, and I'm just like, brights, and I'm like, oh, it's even worse, I can't see anything, and we try desperately to get out of that worry through our own means and efforts, and really what we need to do is we need to pull to the side of the road and just calm down, slow down, and just deal with it in that fashion. Man, when worry comes, can I tell you, calm down, slow down, get on your knees. Go to the Lord. Because tomorrow you're probably going to be worried or anxious. Probably some point later this week, I'm going to be worried or anxious. I need to calm down, slow down, get on my knees. Otherwise I might crash and there might be a whole bunch of heartache as a result because I'm just trying to push through it. And so as Jesus gets towards the end of this section in verses 33 and 34, he says, seek first his kingdom of heaven. That's the proper priority that we would have, that we would seek first his kingdom. That's what eliminates worry. Again, that eternal perspective. It's, it's interesting if, if uh, I want to back up to verse 32. In verse 32, when it says, for the pagans or the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, your heavenly father knows that you need all of these things. One of the best illustrations when it comes to possessions or stuff of how to appropriately handle it is some of you maybe remember the story of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament of when they had fled from slavery in Egypt and now they're wandering in the wilderness for a really long time and they're hungry. They need food and God provides manna. But God has a stipulation when it comes to manna. He says, if you're going to get manna, you got to collect it in the morning before it goes bad. And you only need to collect for what you need. It's not that you can't collect more to distribute to others to give to them. And it's also not that you just wake up and say, well, God will provide. No, you still had to work. You don't work, you don't eat. <laughs> if you don't work and go out into the field of God just literally placing, I don't know, some kind of delicious toast outside of your tent that you can just go and pick up and begin to eat, you got to work, you got to collect it, you got to get it because it's not just for the moment, it's for the rest of the day. He's going to provide us, as he says in the, the study of prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And every day in the wilderness, God gave them their daily manna, their daily bread. And it was this daily reminder, man, if we don't have God, we're going to be dead in this wilderness. We need God. And it's not that I just wake up and just 
put my hand outside the tent and eat. If you do that, maybe in the morning you got breakfast, but what about lunch? What about supper? And then some of you might go, well, again, God's anti-hoarding. He said, don't take more than you need. But there might be some in that community who are a little bit older. It's like, I can't get out to collect as much as I need for, for me and my family. But maybe you, you're a bit of an engineer. You've kind of figured out this whole mana collecting process and you've capitalized on it and you're really good at it. I mean, you're incredible. They're like, man, I got mana coming everywhere. And it's not you hold on to it because it's going to spoil at the end of the day. That's the way God set it up. But it's that you would go, man, I have all this stuff. It's going to spoil. Here you go. Because you're my brother and sister within the nation of Israel. I'm here to be there for you. The, the, the story of, of, of God providing the man in the wilderness is an incredible kind of side-by-side comparison of what we read in this passage from the Sermon on the Mount. And all along the way, Jesus is wanting us to seek and pursue him. When it says, verse 33, but seek first his kingdom, pursue his kingdom, pursue his righteousness, and then allow this stuff just to happen It'll be added unto you. You're going to have the clothes. You're going to have the food. You're going to have your provision. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to take care of itself. Just, today is going to have enough of its own troubles. Seek and pursue after me. A, a way to kind of break this down, if you write in your Bible or you take notes, verses 19 to 24 could be a passage that really kind of deals with those who are a bit wealthier. Don't focus on your stuff. Verses 19 to 24, the rich are tempted to trust in their possessions. But in verses 25 through 34, this might be for maybe those who are not as well off. And it's the poor are tempted to doubt God's provision. So on one extreme, on one hand, the wealthy might say, I'm going to trust in my stuff, my possessions. On the other hand, the poor who are wondering, am I going to have what I need? They might be tempted to doubt God's provision, neither of which are obviously healthy. Whether men are wealthy or women are wealthy or poor or in between, Your attitude toward material possessions is one of the most reliable markers of your spiritual condition. But we don't like to talk about money because it gets in my business. And God doesn't care (laughs) because he cares more about you and your heart. Is it in right priority? 2011, 2012, I had the opportunity to go to Cambodia. Went on a mission trip. Incredible, actually probably the most difficult mission experience I've ever had. But along the way, as we got to interact with some of the, uh, the, the, the locals that were working with us, they, they took us to this place called Angkor Wat. And some of you may not know what Angkor Wat is, but it's a really huge, huge land that uh, they, they had built up uh, temples and, uh, and all kinds of stuff. I mean, just, you can't even imagine how large this, this is. And some of you maybe have seen like National Geographic or other things where there's like these old looking temple things and trees are growing up out of it. And that's where we were. We were getting to see some of this. And it was an incredible spectacle of seeing these monuments just kind of preserved. But as we got there, some of the guides were telling us, don't touch anything because if you touch it, we're afraid it's going to crumble and fall and we don't want it to crumble and fall. And so you have these long-lasting monuments of what was some incredible construction, but even just a little bit of tampering with it, it's going to crumble and fall. There's going to be some things that some people in this life and this world have set up incredible monuments under themselves through their wealth and their possessions, and they're going to be long-lasting. Look at the pyramids in Egypt. But they do begin to deteriorate. They do begin to fade away. They do begin to go away. And I look at these incredible civilizations 
that have had some lasting monuments. Great Wall of China, Angkor Wat, Egypt, so on and so forth. But there's a monument that has continued to remain steadfast, and it's not eroding, it's not going away. And it's the monument and the legacy that Jesus left in his wake. The monument of the cross and the monument of the empty tomb. He forever changed our thoughts of the cross before a device and an instrument of torture, death, and suffering. And now we wear it around our neck and we think of hope and life and salvation. What a lasting legacy he has left behind. And not just that he died upon that cross, but what it represents is that, yeah, he died, but we know three days later he rose again. He's leaving this lasting legacy because of, as we read in Scripture in the New Testament, of his devotion to his heavenly Father. He says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He says in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that I want you to be glorified, God. It's all about your glory, and it's going to be for their good. I want you to be glorified. He's focused on the eternal. And as a result, look at the everlasting wake that he has left behind the legacy that he leaves that I'm a part of because of my faith in Christ. Are you a part of because of your faith in Christ? Not because of your tradition, not because of how you were brought up, but because you have seen the lasting legacy that Jesus has left behind. And you know that if that cross, if I don't understand that cross, I don't see the resurrection, the empty tomb, and I don't come in faith and humility to know that that is available for me, then I, I, it, it's just interesting monuments, but it's not personal monuments that have an impact in my life. My friend, I want all of you to know what it means to know Christ. That's where it begins. Because when you do, and you come to humble yourself before him, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and his righteousness is imputed, transferred, given to you, the righteousness of Jesus, then your perspective hopefully begins to change. And you go, I want to give myself to things that are eternal, just like my Lord and Savior. And then for those of us, I include myself, who are in relationship with Christ, and I've gotten distracted by this pretty little thing over here or that dazzling thing over there, and I'm like, that's what I want to give myself to. And I find that it's unfulfilling, and I come back again to a passage like this, and I'm like, no, 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 not necessarily bad, a great tool, but how can I leverage it for your kingdom? How can I leverage for things that are eternal? So would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Long before you would ever want to give a thing or be generous, before we give anything, we want to receive from the Lord. We want to receive what he's done for us. And this is what I want to remind you of, is that once you do know and experience the living God, through faith and a relationship with Jesus, you get to know the generosity of God personally, experientially. And at that moment, it begins to click and make sense. I'm generous because he's generous. I've received grace. Therefore, I demonstrate grace. My question to you as we praise this, they're going to sing a song called Be Thou My Vision. I don't know if they're going to sing this verse or not, but I want to read it to you. It says, Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. 
thou mine inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only be first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. I think if we want to get our perspective right, get our eternal glasses on, if you will, this morning, it seems to be if we would focus on that which is eternal, but also cast upon him that which is causing us anxiety. I, I absolutely get that you've come in today or you're watching online. You, you've had life last week that was full, hard, difficult. Can I urge you this morning as they sing that you would live out the words of Peter, that you would cast all your cares upon Jesus. Some of you have got some financial burdens. Some of you have some emotional issues and burdens. Some of you have a relational burden. And it is literally churning your stomach, your heart. It's driving you crazy. can't sleep. Man, I don't want this to be something where you feel guilted of don't worry. I want this to be set your gaze on him and take your anxiety and worry to him. He invites you to do that. You might think it's small, and that small thing can gnaw at you for a long time. Take it small, take it big, but take it to the Lord. In just a moment as they sing about our vision being upon God, and take the time to set your gaze and affection upon Jesus before you go into this week. Because you know what? Tomorrow's got enough to deal with. But today, right now, <laughs> focus your gaze on Jesus. Heavenly Father, I, I ask and pray that we as individuals, but also as a church family, would be obedient to your word. We would not go through the motions of, oh, we sing a song at the end and then we're done. But that, Father, that we would capitalize upon this time, having heard from your word, to respond to you. And for any of you that you might say, Pastor, I would love just to pray with someone. Myself, Tim, John, two elders that are here, if you're just someone who's like, I, I would love for someone to pray with me. Come up, visit with me. I'll pray with you. Because there's an anxiety or worry, worry going on in your life. For others of you, you might just even lift your hand up. And they'll see you and they'll come around you and they'll just pray for you. You don't even have to tell them what it is. They'll just know to pray for you. But man, take advantage of this time. Invest in this time. If you would, would you stand as they sing, as they play, you respond to what the Lord has told you today.